The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Our Father, we're indeed grateful that we can gather together to worship you this morning, to sing praises to your name in reflection of all that you have done for us, to honor and glorify you. Father, we also thank you for our great salvation that is a result of your magnificent grace. And we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation, that we can come together and study your word freely. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. We've been reading through Psalm 119, which praises the sufficiency and the value of God's Word. In this particular section, verses 129 to 136, the psalmist talks about how it is through God's Word that we see truth and we understand truth. That's the imagery that we have again and again in the Psalms, that the Word of God is the source of light or illumination to truth, and one of the other Psalms, David says, it is in thy light that we see light. In other words, it's only when we have the Word of God as our ultimate authority for knowledge that we truly understand every other area of knowledge. Beginning in verse 129. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for your commandments. Look upon me and be merciful to me, as your custom is toward those who love your name. Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Giving is a result of the appreciation, the gratitude that we have in our own soul for all that God has done for us, all that He has provided for us, beginning with our salvation and extending through all the other blessings that He provides for us in life. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful for all the things that You provide for us in life, for the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the houses we live in, the clothes that we have. All that we have comes from You. Now, Father, we give these gifts in support of the local church as just a token of our appreciation for all that you have done for us and provided for us. In Jesus Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are and that we're properly prepared for the study of God's Word. Scripture teaches that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us, that sin separates us from the fellowship, the intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and our ongoing spiritual growth. So it's important that we keep short accounts on the sin in our life by using 1 John 1, 9 and confessing or admitting our sin to God uh, on a regular basis. But it's especially important when we gather together for worship and the study of God's Word to do so, so that we can have the uh, teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying ministry activated in our own life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in the light of your word that we see light. Father, as we gather together now for the highest form of worship, to study your word, so that we may learn to think as you think, so that, we are more, so that we're properly oriented to your plan, your purpose in our life, so that we can come to a greater appreciation of all that you have done for us and provided for us, so that we can gain a greater appreciation for how you're working in our lives and the purposes that you have in our salvation. Father, now we pray that you would enlighten us as we study your word, that we might be challenged by the things that we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. This is the sixth of the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. These are evaluation reports that Jesus Christ is sending to each of these congregations. Uh, These congregations as a whole represent the various trends that you find in the church age, the strengths and weaknesses that every believer in every congregation uh, demonstrates. In this sixth evaluation report to the church in Philadelphia, nothing negative is said. All that we have is a commendation for the way that this small group of believers have grown to spiritual maturity, as indicated by what we saw in our study last time, by the phrase that they have kept his word. They are obedient. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again and again, he reiterated that theme. He reiter- it's reiterated by the Apostle John in First John, which is what we studied last time. So we know that these are mature believers. As a result of their maturity, because of their capacity, there is a promise, an encouragement that is embedded as a parenthetical comment at the beginning of his commendation. This is out of order. This is not what we find in any of the other uh, 
evaluation report. So let's just review what we have here at the beginning. Revelation 3.7 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This epistle begins with this reference to the character of Jesus Christ emphasizing his exclusive role as the one and only way to salvation. As we saw in our study of this passage, the reference to the key of David indicates that he is the messianic descendant of David. He is the one who holds the key to entrance into uh, heaven and eternal life. He and he alone is the way to eternal salvation. Then he commends the church in verse 8 by saying, I know your works. This is a summary statement that we have seen in each of these evaluation reports. It indicates that his exclusive and exhaustive knowledge of every aspect of every individual and every congregation. He is fully aware of your production. He is aware of the production of each congregation. He knows our strengths, our weaknesses. We can't uh, try to uh, pull the wool over his eyes at all. He is fully aware of every aspect. He says, I know your works, and then we see this parenthesis. He says, see or behold, I have set before you an open door. This open door imagery goes right back to the fact that he is the one who has the key of David that opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, which is indicated in verse 7. He says, I set before you an open door. No one can shut it for or because you have little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, last time we saw that this passage is set up something like this. We have the main thought, I know your works, that you have a little strength. The that there is a correct translation. Uh, the for is a translation, I said last time, of a Greek particle, hati, which can be translated as an explanation word. That is, I know something, that, and then the what you know follows the statement. Or it can be translated as for or because. This word is contained in each of these opening statements. I know your works that. So we must be consistent and translate it that, that way here, not as a for or because as you have in certain translations. I know your works, that you have little strength. That is, you seem small in number in terms of uh, human viewpoint uh, analysis. You might not have too many people. You might not have too many resources. But nevertheless, though your physical strength may be uh, reduced, you have kept my word. We saw last time that that indicates, that's a phrase that's filled with meaning, indicates that they've advanced to spiritual maturity, and that they have not denied my name, that even under persecution they have stood fast, they have endured, they have been faithful. Now that is the commendation in between these two statements, the opening phrase and the concluding phrase, we have a parenthetical encouragement, which I just sort of passed over last time. See, I have given before you an open door, and no one can shut it. In almost a, an expression of, uh, of enthusiasm, the Lord puts this right in there, just interrupts his flow of thought, and sets this there as a statement of encouragement to these believers who are obviously 
undergoing persecution not only from the pagan Romans around them, but also from the unbelieving Jews. This is indicated by the statement referring to those who are the synagogue of Satan in the in verse nine. But this morning I want to focus on the implications and the significance of this phrase that I have given before you an open door and no one can shut it. That's a correct translation. Most of your versions uh, that you have probably say something like, I have set before you. But the verb there in the Greek is the verb didomi, which is the word for to give or to grant. It is a word that always speaks of grace. It always reminds us of God's unmerited favor towards us. This is a, an act of God's grace towards this congregation. It is not a, a Hebraism. It doesn't mean I have said. It's not an idiom. It should be translated I have given, indicating a special grace, blessing, and privilege that God has set before this congregation, that God has given them an open door. Now, what does it mean that God has given them an open door? Well, this is an idiom that we find throughout the Scripture to indicate opportunity, specifically evangelistic opportunity for for an individual or a congregation. It's used that way in Acts 14, uh, 27, referring to opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. That refers back to when Peter took the gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We have 1 Corinthians 16.9 where Paul states, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's talking about the fact that there's many opportunities for service, but nevertheless we're involved in spiritual warfare, and not only are we facing the hostility of the demonic hordes, the principalities and powers, and Satan himself, but we also face the enemies in the cosmic system in the world around us. But here again we have this idiom of a door that is opened indicating opportunities for evangelism and teaching the Word. Second Corinthians 2.12, Paul uses the idiom again. He says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me, in the Lord. Again, he is mentioning the fact that this is an opportunity to take the gospel. Troas was located up in Macedonia, and this is a reference to the fact that, that Paul was the first to take the gospel from Asia into Europe. That's the dividing point as he goes from Turkey to uh, Greece. And in Troas, there was an opportunity for him to uh, take the gospel for the first time to Europe. Colossians 4.3, he says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word. Again, that uh, this is used as, the, as an expression of opportunity to teach the Word, to explain the Gospel, to have evangelistic opportunities in a culture. And this is something we should always pray for in relation to missionaries, in relationship to opportunities for our own congregation. So this brings up the doctrine of missions, or what the Bible teaches about missions and missionaries, that the world is our mission field. Every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the instant that you enter into salvation, you enter into full-time Christian service. Now, there are some who enter into 
professional or vocational Christian service. These are pastors, and we refer to others as missionaries or evangelists. But every single believer, from the instant that you are saved, you are in full-time Christian service. For being an evangelist and a missionary is not something that is restricted to those who have uh, some special gift in the sense of evangelism or pastor-teacher or who have a special uh, vocational desire to serve on uh, the mission field either at home or abroad. Missions is a vital part of the local church and has been a vital part of the local church since the beginning of the church age back in the book of Acts. In fact, missions doesn't begin with the church. It has its foundation all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So we're going to have to look at this this morning to give us an understanding of why we are to emphasize missions as part of a local church, as part of our uh, congregation. We want to start with a definition of what missions uh, consists. General, just a general definition. All believers are expected to be involved in witnessing. This goes with the territory of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a general understanding that when you go out from church and you go through those doors out into the world, you are a missionary. You have a responsibility as a believer priest as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ to explain the gospel to those who are not saved and to challenge those who are saved to uh, greater growth in their uh, spiritual life. This is the part of the responsibility of every believer. Uh, we might call this an informal definition of missions. But ever since the early church, there's been a formal development of missions. Ever since Acts chapter 13, there's been a formal sense in terms of those who are specifically set apart by a local church in this responsibility. Uh, Gordon Olson, let's see if this slide shows up very well. I was playing with this this morning, and I don't think that shows up very well. Let me read the definition to you. Gordon Olson has written an excellent textbook on missions, and he uh, writes as a definition that missions involves the whole task, endeavor, and program of the Church of Jesus Christ to reach out across geographical and or cultural boundaries by sending, that should read sending, missionaries to evangelize people who have never heard or who have little opportunity to hear the saving gospel. So it is part and parcel of the mission, the purpose for which a church exists. We can summarize the purpose statement of any local church into two words, evangelism and edification. Evangelism and edification. Uh, the purpose of the local church exists to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 11 and 12, that the gifts of, of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor-teacher are given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. It's not that the pastor or the evangelist is to do the work of the ministry. It is the saints, the believers in the local congregation, who are to do the work of the ministry in reference to their own spiritual gifts. Some of you have spiritual gifts of 
uh, leadership. Others have spiritual gifts of administration. Other ha- others have spiritual gifts of mercy. But everybody has a spiritual gift. Others have a spiritual gift of service, which is I always think of as sort of the catch-all because service can uh, can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Uh, spirit, some people get confused about spiritual gifts. There are even those who think that being a missionary is a spiritual gift. But being a missionary is not a spiritual gift. It's not listed anywhere in the spiritual gift passages. A missionary is simply someone set aside by a local church and formally recognized by a local church to be involved in the work of carrying the gospel somewhere else. Now, a missionary can have the gift of evangelist or pastor teacher. That's what we normally think of. We think of someone like Jim Myers. Someone who has a gift of pastor teacher who goes to another country, lives in another culture, learns the language, learns the culture, gets involved in translating good biblical uh, doctrinal material into the language of that uh, culture, begins to train people, plant churches, do that sort of thing. We think of that man out front, he's the missionary, and people love to focus on that man, but for every uh, every individual who is out front planting churches, doing things, there's a, there's a whole army of service personnel behind them. Another example of a mission organization, this is a different category of missions. We think of uh, the illustration I used of Jim Myers as a foreign missionary, but we also, over the history of the church, have divided or set aside another category of missions called home missions. And that would involve people who may not even leave their their uh, hometown. They're still involved in a local area. You have uh, mission organizations such as Child Evangelism Fellowship and other ministries of that type that are involved in taking the gospel to a particular segment of our culture here. But you also have training institutions usually come under that category. Bible colleges, seminaries, places that are involved in the training of pastors and and missionaries. And so we have schools like Dallas Theological Seminary and Schaefer Theological Seminary and the College of Biblical Studies, and these are all supported by individual donations and donations from local churches as part of the mission strategy of a local church looking to the future in training and preparing leaders. So you have to have a vision for the future, for training leaders, you have to be able to answer that question, who's going to teach doctrine to my children and my grandchildren? Uh, what are we doing today to prepare uh, those people to do that? So that comes under the category of, of home missions. But uh, even when you look at a school like Chafer Theological Seminary, we tend to think of the key players, the professors, the teachers, and we don't think of the secretaries We don't think of the administrative help. We don't think of the office managers. But that's all part and parcel of that particular function, the academic deans who are in charge of the education aspect. And and too often what I've found over the years is that it's very easy for people to catch a vision to support the out-front seminary-trained or ordained leaders in these areas, but they forget about the people who are working with them, the support staff, the, the uh, secretaries and the translators and all of the other people that are necessary 
to the survival of his particular missionary. Just like in a local church, you've got you have the pastor, but you also have administrative staff of secretaries and office managers and all of the other uh, people that as you go to a larger and larger ministry, you need to have, you can't just survive on volunteer help, you have to have uh, a larger group. So what I want you to think of as missionaries is not just the people who are involved in the uh, teaching aspect, but there's a lot more to it. In fact, recently I was discussing with a, a young man who has recently uh, earned his master's degree in business administration and was thinking about that, well, maybe I have the gift of pastor-teacher. And I said, well, don't just limit, don't, don't put blinders on and think that the gift of pastor-teacher only functions in terms of a pulpit ministry and pastoring a church. That's what you've been exposed to. But you may have the desire to teach the Word, and maybe the best way that God is going to use you is after you get some training, get a THM, that you can go work in a seminary as a business administrator. They need people like that. They need secretaries. They need uh, people who understand uh, all of the different aspects of administration. So do missionaries. They need people with those talents and with those abilities. One of the things that concerns me is that in recent years, there has been a, 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 a failure. There has been a uh, withdrawal of the pulpit challenge to people, to especially young people, to seriously consider making uh, full-time vocational Christian work your career. As a result, what we've seen in recent years is a number of men who wake up in their, when they're in their late 30s or in their 40s when they've got uh, wives and children and in some cases grandchildren and they've got careers and they say well I think I have the gift of pastor teacher what do I do now well the problem is that when you were 20 years old you didn't have the uh, spiritual courage to really face this and go forward with it and now you've made other decisions and in some cases that ship has just left the station you know you, that ship has left the dock you're, you're too late and, and part of that's the failure of pulpit ministries to challenge young men. I've been reflecting upon this some lately because in a lot of churches today, we've, we've distanced ourselves from some of the traditional structures that churches have had for doing this. For example, uh, sending people off to Christian camps during the summer, sending our kids off to Christian camps like Camp Penile. And I remember back in uh, the early 70s, I went to a Christian Camping International Conference. I was involved in Christian camping for years. It's a great evangelistic opportunity. And just because different camps don't always do things the way that perhaps they ought to or the most efficient way or they have doctrinal minor disagreements here and there, uh, doesn't mean we should throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is what has happened. And uh, I remember hearing a statistic that at that time, 80% of missionaries and pastors that were in full-time vocational work had made a decision to do that as a result of being at a Christian camp. That's a, that, and now, and so if you don't send kids off to Christian camp, then they're not, they don't necessarily receive that challenge or hear that anymore. And I'm not saying that's the only place it should happen. I came face-to-face with the reality that I had a 
communication gifts sitting in church as a result of a pastor teaching the Word and challenging the young people and telling us as teenagers that some of you have the gift of pastor-teacher. Some of you young ladies in here uh, might, that are single now may marry a man who has the gift of pastor-teacher and be involved in uh, a ministry to uh, someone who's a missionary, a husband who's a missionary, or is a pastor. There's just This can affect all manner of people. So just because you sit there and you have a job, you have a career, uh, or you're young and you think, oh, I'm going to go into this field or that field, doesn't mean that this doesn't apply. This whole subject of missions applies to every single one of us. And over the last 30 years, we have seen a drastic, if not tragic, reduction in the number of men who are willing to go to seminary at a young age so that they can be trained, so that they can learn, so that they can have a fruitful lifetime of ministry. And as a pastor or as a missionary, we've seen fewer and fewer people willing to go into foreign cultures as missionaries. And what has happened is that uh, the vast majority of couples that go on the mission field never go back for their second tour of duty. They'll usually go for three years, come back the fourth year or fifth year on on, uh, furlough, then they don't go back because it's too much of a cultural challenge to go from a uh, very affluent American uh, suburban culture where everything that you could possibly desire is located within three or four miles of your home to work someplace where you only get these these uh, finer things in life once in a while or when you come home, going to some place like Bogota or to uh, go to some place in a Muslim culture where you might see one convert after 30 years or to go and work in pagan Europe, or to go to India where you have to deal with incredibly strange languages and people and smells and food, is, is such that uh, in, in many cases it's not the men, it's the women. There was a study done by uh, Denver Seminary where they found that, that uh, uh, the vast majority of divorces that were occurring among their graduates were because the wives did not want to put up with the economic and physical sacrifices of the ministry, whether as pastors or as missionaries. And in, um, I don't have a vast number of, of uh, stories to tell about people I know who did go out as foreign missionaries, but of the ones that I know that came back, it was almost always a result of the fact that it was the wife who could not handle living in that kind, uh, a culture where they couldn't have the things that all of their uh, friends had back in the States. And so it's, it's, we're all products of this materialistic culture of 21st century America. And so it is a challenge to serve the Lord in a full-time capacity. And yet it is the role and responsibility of the pastor and the local church to challenge people to this as a very real and very valid uh, job choice. In fact, the most significant career choice you can make in life, if you have the gift of pastor-teacher, is to be a pastor-teacher. There's nothing 
that has more value in life than to be a pastor. And I can't tell you how many young men I uh, encouraged when they were in high school and in college to go to seminary or to go to Bible college and to get training because of their enthusiasm for the Word. And in 80% of the cases, their parents would come along and say, no, you need to live in the real world and get a real job and go to go to college and get, get trained in uh, a profession so you have something to fall back on. Now, that's not necessarily a bad idea, but in every one of those cases, by the time they got through with, with secular university, they no longer had a desire to serve the Lord. Somebody just threw a bucket of water on their passion and their desire to serve the Lord when they were young, and then they became uh, distracted by by something else. The result today is that the World War II generation that sent tens of thousands of missionaries out from America throughout the world has retired off the field by now. And about 60% of the mission force that America sent out in the 50s and the 60s is no longer there. And the and it, it's had a terrible impact but today we have great opportunities. Not only do you have opportunities to go overseas, but if you just look around your neighborhood, you as just an ordinary believer have opportunities to witness to the Muslim who lives next door, the Hindu who lives across the street, and the Buddhist who lives uh, behind you. And you don't even have to go overseas in order to be a missionary. And where are you going to get the training to do that? Well, you're going to get it right here in your local church. That's where the training is to take place, where it should occur. But unfortunately, too many churches have such a shallow view of missions that it actually doesn't occur. So we look at missions as a vital function of the church. It's related to the mission of the church. Jesus Christ gave us a mission, and that it has to do with evangelism and with edification, that is, teaching the Word of God so that people can grow to spiritualized Maturity, I mean spiritual maturity. As I go through this this morning, I'm going to talk about missions in a specialized sense, not in the informal sense that it applies to each one of us, but in a special sense, referring to the sending forth of authorized persons beyond the border of the local church and her immediate gospel influence to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in gospel destitute areas, to win converts from other faiths or non-faiths to Jesus Christ, and to establish functioning, multiplying local congregations who will bear fruit, the fruit of Christianity in their community and in their country. Missions can be involved in, in sending and preparing people who can go into a ghetto culture, can go into a Hispanic culture, can go into uh, a Muslim culture right here in the United States and to have an impact and to communicate the gospel. As we look at that definition, I want to break it down a little bit. The first part I said sending authorized and trained people. These are spiritually mature people who have been trained formally, not just informally in a local church, but who are trained formally through either Bible college or through uh, seminary. Uh, many times you, have to, you can supplement what is 
involved in the local church. Now, this is right here in Houston. We have the College of Biblical Studies. There's some great training that takes place there. It's a large school. There are many different faculty members. Not everyone there uh, may be the very best in that particular field. That's the way it is in many schools. You may not know this, but the College of Biblical Studies has uh, 17 to 1,800 students. It's the largest fully accredited four-year Bible college in the country. And you can go there and get a good training. Now, one of the things I do notice there is when I ask my students, uh, why are you here? Why are you at uh, College of Biblical Studies? It's, for the most part, I want to learn more about the Bible. I said, well, aren't you learning the Bible at your local church? And the answer is unanimously, no, I'm not. So I always reply to that with the question, well, why are you going to that church? I mean, if your church isn't teaching you the Bible, why are you there? Uh, that seems to me that's why we're to go to church, is to be trained and equipped to do the work of the ministry. See, if churches really did what they were supposed to do, there wouldn't be a need for Bible colleges and seminaries. But churches don't do what they're supposed to do, uh, other than one or two. And so uh, it's necessary to have these other schools. It's also important to have academically uh, trained people who have the right credentials, who've gone through seminary, have a master's of theology, and even those who will press on to a Ph.D. Too often we've limited ourselves in terms of this vision to challenging men to go to seminary, get a, get a THM so that they can be a pastor. But what about going on to be a Ph.D. so that you can train pastors and be qualified to teach in a seminary? This is one of the challenges we face with Chafer Seminary is that in... Uh, over the years, we have emphasized so much the uh, training of men to be pastors, and no one has ever mentioned that we need to train professors to train pastors, that now we can't find PhDs who agree with our doctrinal distinctives that we can put in the classroom to train our pastors. And the way accreditation issues go in, uh, in our country it's now the case, and it wasn't this way with uh, Dallas Seminary when I was there or in previous years, but these accrediting agencies have tightened things up, and uh, they influence a lot. And they say that, you, that a professor can't teach a THM class unless he has the next higher degree in that field. That means you can't teach a third or fourth year Greek class unless you have a Ph.D. in Greek. You can't teach a third or fourth year THM uh, theology class unless you have your Ph.D. in theology. These are the pressures that are put on us today, and so this is why some of the seminaries are just opting to not be accredited. But in the state of Texas, you know, this is something, I'm not one to encourage activism, but if I were, this is an issue that I would encourage is that this state has adopted a law back during educational reform in the mid-80s stating that you can't start a seminary, call yourself a seminary, issue degrees that have nomenclature of Master of Theology, Master of Arts, or any of this terminology, unless you have the approval of this uh, Texas uh, State Department of Education. And in order to get that approval, you have to be fully accredited. If you don't realize it, accreditation usually costs between a million and two million dollars. You have to have a minimum of four PhDs that you're paying full-time salaries to. You have to have a library of somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 volumes because you're doing 
master's level research, so you have to have the right size library. You And in order to get all of that costs enormous amounts of money, and you have to raise uh, uh, an annual income of at least 500000 to a uh, million dollars a year plus a lot of spe- extra special money. This is one of the challenges that faces uh, Chafer Seminary right now as, uh, as we seek to go forward in the future. Uh, one thing that uh, makes it impossible, literally it is impossible to start a seminary in the state of Texas today because of this legislation. Uh, the term seminary is a legally protected term. The term use, saying giving them a degree, the term degree is a legally protected term. So these are just ways in which we face challenges and pressures in uh, the current environment of uh, paganism in America. We have to have spiritually, doctrinally, academically trained people. Uh, you can't. I say this over and over again. It's great to be a product of a local church and go to Bible class and you can learn a lot from a pastor teaching two or three times a week. But let's face it, you can't learn how to do exegesis and you can't learn how to think critically in the realm of theology uh, by listening to the results of somebody else's study any more than you can learn to do a heart transplant by uh, spending a couple of years sitting in the observation booth down at... uh, uh, down at St. Luke's and watching uh, Dr. DeBakey do heart transplants. But some people have gotten the idea that they can do that and they crank out and ordain uh, these uh, uh, pastors out of their congregations who can simply parrot what they've said. And that's fine to a certain point, but they can't think independently because they have not been trained to do so. You can't replace the academic classroom at all. It's just not possible. And a lot of people in the pew just don't realize uh, the problem. But you go in and you, if you from, come from my perspective and you look at, at the product of a Dallas seminary in 1960 as opposed to the product of uh, somebody who's spent 10 years in a local church studying under a particular pastor, you can see a tremendous difference. And I'm not challenging their desire, their sincerity, but uh, we want excellence. We want to do everything to honor and glorify the Lord, and that means to pursue excellence in every area. So we need to send authorized and trained people. We need to have an emphasis of that in, uh, in the church. From the Acts accounts, uh, we see that they sent the very best. For example, in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, the first three verses, we have the first example of a local church setting aside specific people to send them out as missionaries. We read in verse 1, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. This is the early church. They still had uh, the New Testament gift of prophecy was still active. There were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That would indicate that he was quite wealthy and quite uh, academically trained in that culture. And as well as Saul, that is Saul of Tarsus, who is the Apostle Paul. So they had some quality individuals, well-trained men who were accomplished and had been successful in teaching the Word. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The two best 
teachers in the church were the ones that the Holy Spirit said to send on the mission field. That just backs up what I've been saying. We have to have a vision for excellence in sending trained people onto the mission field. So from the Acts accounts, we see that there is this emphasis on sending the very best. So we want to send authorized and trained people, and we send them into situations that involve either language distinctions or cross-cultural distinctions, so they have to learn to be culturally flexible. And that's sometimes very difficult, especially for Americans, because we don't grow up learning four or five different languages, which is uh, typical in places such as uh, Europe or uh, other places in the world. You go over to Europe, and it's very common to find people who can speak German and French and English and Italian. And uh, you go to Russia, and many of the people know how to speak German as well as English, and uh, other, and they are, are learning other languages. When you learn other languages, you learn about the co- other cultures, and you begin to have some cultural flexibility. But that's difficult for Americans, which is one reason so many American missionaries don't last very long on the mission field anymore. I think it's fascinating to think about the fact that it was those uh, young men and women who uh, went through the Depression, grew up during the Depression, went to uh, out to fight in World War II, came back having been exposed to the world, came back, went through seminary training so that they could go back to those same places where they had fought in order to take the gospel to those other cultures. These were men and women who understood uh, physical sacrifice and doing without. But when it comes to their children and grandchildren, uh, they've been spoiled by uh, the affluence of our culture, and they just can't handle it anymore. And this is a tremendous indictment of our, of our culture. Well, I've talked about foreign missions. I've talked a little bit about home missions. Let me give you some other examples of home missions. Not only do you have uh, schools and Bible colleges, and I think that should be a priority in any local church, that when you start a plan of supporting missionaries, there should be a uh, plan to support seminaries or Bible colleges first and foremost because that's the future. If we aren't training pastors... To, to teach our children and our grandchildren, then we're ignoring the future. But you also have uh, summer camps and youth ministries. You have campus uh, ministries that take the uh, gospel uh, onto the campus. There's all kinds of different uh, home ministries. Then there's foreign missions where you uh, commission somebody like a, like a Jim Myers or or like Moses Anwabiko, who takes the gospel to uh, cross-cultural uh, situations. The idea is to, first of all, uh, train them or teach them the gospel, to communicate this message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and that if they believe in him and in him alone, they can have eternal life. But to do that, you have to have somebody who's willing to take the time to learn that foreign culture to learn how a a, a Hindu thinks, to learn how a Muslim thinks, to learn how just a pagan, secular European thinks so that they can more uh, uh, proficiently and efficiently communicate the gospel. The second task is to train and to teach, to teach them the word of God. 
and to train them in uh, the, the entire Word of God, the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation, ultimately to train leaders, indigenous leaders, who can then take over and those local churches and they can uh, establish a local church that is self-supporting. One of the challenges today in, I know, in Russia and in Ukraine is that because of the poverty in those churches, and it's true in other areas, I'm sure, in Africa as well as South America, that it is American dollars that keep many of these churches going. It's a, it, it is the support of these mission organizations that makes it possible for those churches to continue because the local people just have so uh, so little. In fact, in the uh, indigenous churches that I'm familiar with in, in, the, uh, in Ukraine that have gotten started, many of those pastors are vocational, bivocational pastors. They have to work at one job because the, the, the congregation just can't or doesn't support them financially so that they can um, study and teach and focus. So that creates a, 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 weaker, a weaker church. So we have to have a vision for evangelism. This goes back, as I said, to Genesis and goes all the way through the Scriptures. I want to go through some passages next time that establish this, but I want to end with a challenge this morning, a challenge to us as a new church at West Houston Bible Church. First of all, I want to give a challenge to parents and Sunday school teachers that we need to create a world vision for our children. We can do this through reading missionary stories to children, read stories about various missionaries, Hudson Taylor, George Mueller. There are many others down through through the centuries so that uh, our children have a vision of, of the entire world as their mission field. This was said of Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of John and Charles Wesley. They were the founders of what now is called the Methodist Church. And she would read missionary accounts to them, stories about people in different places in the world, so that they grew up thinking that the world was their, uh, their uh, field of ministry. Challenge our young men, our sons, to look at missions and the pastorate as uh, possible career options if they have the gift of pastor-teacher. And even if they don't have the gift of pastor-teacher, there are many areas in missions and in education that demand other skills. Uh, just, just only the front man the, is, is the one who's got the gift of pastor-teacher and evangelism. He needs a whole support staff. We need to teach about giving and financial support of missions uh, in the home from individual believers, families, and the local church. This should be a priority because these ministries live on money. That's just the reality of life. They have to pay salaries. They have to purchase uh, computers. They have to uh, rent space to have their offices. Uh, They have to build classrooms and buy land. This is frustration in many places. Uh, it, it costs money. So this is true both for foreign missions as well as for uh, home missions. Furthermore, with the rise of immigration in this country and with all of the different religions that have come here, you need to think of your own neighborhood, your own workplace perhaps, as a mission field where you know of those that you can communicate the gospel to. So you need to learn how to be more effective at doing that. 
Now, when we bring that home to West Houston Bible Church, what does that mean for us? We're still a mission in some ways. We are a new church. We are, we're here. And we've been in existence for about two years, but we're still getting established. One of the principles that I've come to apply over the years is that young churches need to wait until they're firmly established before they get too committed in terms of uh, financial commitment to missions, simply because it's better to wait until you're fully and firmly established as a local church before you start sending all your money away. I went to a church, a pastor at a church 20 years ago. They had made a commitment, whoever the initial founding pastor was, they had made a commitment that, that they were going to give 20% to missions from whatever came in. Well, that prevented them from having the money to really rent a space to meet and therefore to grow and to become fully established and, and very strong. They limited themselves by making these idealistic decisions at the beginning. So I don't believe that we should uh, have a formal financial support program until we are fully uh, and completely uh, established. So in stage one... We need to recognize that we're still a mission, but we should be involved with missionaries. We need to identify missionaries that we can pray for and that uh, some in the congregation may wish to financially support. We need to encourage the sending of special gifts and care packages and uh, dealing with and perhaps helping with special needs for some of these organizations. And over the last couple of years, we've done a, a very good job of that, uh, keeping up that communication with these ministries. Actually, we need to identify someone in the congregation, preferably a man, who would have a vision for this, that he would take on that responsibility under the leadership of one of the deacons to uh, keep the church informed, to be the person who would accumulate uh, missionary letters and to make sure that the ch church is informed of, of what's going on, what the prayer needs are for all the different missionaries that, that we want to be involved with. As the Lord provides for us uh, financially and as we grow, then we'll move to stage two, which is where we would identify a few missionaries that we think are worthy of financial support, and then we'll challenge the congregation to support uh, them with financial gifts above to, to West Houston Bible Church above and beyond the general fund. This is the idea that you would uh, say, okay, I want to give a certain amount of money to support missions. I'm going to give that to West Houston Bible Church. Each quarter we would take a look and say, well, in the last quarter $4,000 came in for missions. We have four missionaries that we've decided to support. We'll divide it equally among those four and send it out. But it's not yet part of our general fund for we're still trying to get the church on a firm footing. And then once we move through stage two, the third stage would be to move that missionary support level into the general fund as a, as a major category. So that just sort of lays out a plan that would be implemented probably over a period of three to five years. But we need to keep that in mind. There's nothing more important for a local church than to look beyond its four walls and to look beyond its doors. We have a, we're a, a mission that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to, to take the gospel to everyone who needs to hear it, to the lost in our neighborhood, the lost in our city, the lost in our state, and throughout the world. We need to be involved informally as well as formally with taking the gospel to all those who need to hear it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be challenged from your word with regard to to missions that you have, as it were, given us an opportunity, just like the church at Philadelphia set before us an open door, the opportunity to be involved in missions to support those who are involved in going to other cultures, both here and abroad. Father, the world is in desperate need of an understanding of your grace and your provision of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that you would make that sure and certain for them. That right now they would understand that without a faith in Jesus Christ, they cannot have eternal life. They are under condemnation. Scripture says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Right now, right where you sit, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. The instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father knows what you have done, and he imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, declares you justified, gives you eternal life, which will never be taken from you. Father, we pray that for the rest of us we would be uh, gain a greater appreciation of what you have called us to as believers, and part of that is evangelism, uh, both informally in terms of our own lives and formally in terms of support of uh, set-apart missionaries, evangelists who take the gospel throughout the world, as well as seminaries. We pray for those that we're involved with, for Jim Myers, for Moses Onwabiko, for Chafer Seminary, for Ralph LaRosa, for many of these others. We pray for their needs, for their financial needs. We trust that you will provide for them. And we pray that you would give us a greater vision for missions. We pray these things now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.